Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was the night of July 3rd, 1996, on the tropical island of Bermuda, when five friends heading home late after work discovered a young girl with her throat slit dying in the middle of an isolated road. Rebecca Jane Middleton, a 17-year-old Canadian tourist on summer holiday, had been viciously raped and murdered. It was one of the worst crimes the island had seen in years, and the story made international headlines. Bermuda, a self-governing British overseas territory, had a long-standing reputation as a safe and peaceful holiday destination. There had been only one other murder on the island that year, and the violent killing of a tourist stood to threaten their most lucrative industry. The police knew they had to find the killer or killers quickly. And with a $10,000 U.S. reward on offer, it didn't take long before two suspects were in custody. 21-year-old Kurt Mundy and 17-year-old Justice Smith were charged with Rebecca's murder. They were the last men seen with the Canadian teenager when they offered to drive her back to her friend Jasmine's house on the back of their motorbike. But Rebecca never made it home that night. Arrested 10 days after the murder, it didn't take long for one of the accused to flip on the other. Jamaican-born Kurt Mundy, a man already awaiting trial on charges of armed bank robbery, told the police that he had picked up Rebecca and the two had consensual sex. But it was Justice Smith, he claimed, who had stabbed and killed her. He showed the police where the supposed murder weapon had been dumped, and he eagerly agreed to testify against his friend, if he could make a deal. Wanting the murder case off the front pages of international newspapers, the Bermudian Crown Attorney's Office offered Kurt Mundy a plea bargain. He would testify against Justice Smith and would serve only five years for being an accessory after the fact in the murder of Rebecca Middleton. And he would not be charged with any sexual offenses. A far cry from a possible death sentence by hanging that premeditated murder still carried in Bermuda. But within days, the country's lead prosecutor realized that they had made a huge miscalculation. An irrevocable plea deal had been struck before the DNA results were returned from the RCMP in Ottawa, where they had been shipped for processing. Expecting to find both men's DNA on Rebecca's body, The tests only showed one, semen belonging to Kurt Mundy. Mundy had raped, sodomized, and likely killed Rebecca Middleton. They had made a deal with the devil. 
and Kurt Mundy could not be recharged with murder under the rules of double indemnity. Now, the island's prosecutor had to prove a case against Justice Smith with no DNA evidence linking him to Rebecca's rape or murder. The world was watching, and Rebecca's devastated family wanted justice for their beautiful daughter. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a dream trip to a tropical destination that ended in murder. A young Canadian teenager's adventure that turned horribly wrong and forced her devastated family into a decades-long search for justice in a foreign country. But truth and justice would prove elusive in the beautiful island paradise. Would anyone ever pay for the young Canadian girl's death, a murder so heinous that it would eventually attract the interest of a well-known British human rights lawyer who also happened to be the wife of the British Prime Minister? This is Evil in Paradise, Episode 3. It's hard to be ever since. It feels like a really bad nightmare. She was there to have fun. One long year after Rebecca Middleton's murder in Bermuda, her family was still waiting for answers and justice. One of the accused had made a plea deal, while the other was still awaiting trial. The Middletons couldn't believe that the Bermudian Attorney General had allowed one of their daughter's possible killers to negotiate a plea deal before the DNA evidence had been returned. And now the trial for the other accused kept getting delayed. They had little choice but to wait. On July 17, 1997, Kurt Mundy was back in the Bermuda Supreme Court to answer to the charge of armed robbery that he had committed in 1995. Mundy had been out on bail when he and Justice Smith picked up Rebecca Middleton on that summer night in July of 1996. Hoping to get a lighter sentence, Mundy again offered to testify against his friend in Smith's upcoming murder trial. But this time, the Crown attorney wasn't biting. Mundy had fooled them once, and while they couldn't recharge him for Rebecca's murder, they could at least keep him off the streets for a long time. Mundy was sentenced to 16 years for armed robbery, to be served consecutively with the five-year sentence he had received for being an accessory in the murder of Rebecca Middleton. Mundy would be behind bars for 21 years. One year later, in July 1998, Bermuda's Attorney General attempted to rescind Mundy's plea deal and charge him with murder. But the Privy Council of London, the colony's highest court, ruled that Mundy could not be retried. The trial of Justice Smith began on November 23, 1998, almost two and a half years after Rebecca's murder. Justice Smith's parents had retained John Perry, an aggressive London-based lawyer, to defend their son. Perry had represented some notorious criminals on the island and was well known for his courtroom theatrics. Island newspapers reported that a local church had picked up part of the cost for the well-respected defense attorney. Representing the Crown was Prosecutor Bill Pierce, who had been a trial lawyer for 30 years and had previously tried cases in the Supreme Court of Canada and the Privy Council in London, but he had never prosecuted a murder case. Presiding over the trial was Justice Vincent Mirabu. Sitting in the small Bermudian courtroom were Rebecca's parents, 
Dave Middleton, and Cindy Bennett. Rick Means, Jasmine's father, was also there. They had waited a long time for this day, and now as they stared at the accused, who appeared bored with the proceedings, their anger and grief were overwhelming. Their only hope was for an expedient trial. Prosecutor William Pierce began by methodically detailing his case against Smith based on the evidence that had been collected. He told the court that a steak knife matching an incomplete set found in Smith's parents' home was uncovered by police near the scene of the crime. He also emphasized that witnesses had placed Smith and Mundy with Rebecca right before the murder. The prosecutor also told the jury that he would be calling on forensic experts who would testify that two people were involved in the crime, judging from the wounds on Rebecca's body. Pierce warned the jury that the evidence and testimony about how the young teenager died was going to be difficult to hear. Something that Rebecca's parents, Dave and Cindy, were also trying to prepare themselves for. They knew that the testimony ahead would relive their daughter's last harrowing moments. Coy Fox, who had asked his friends for the lift out to the state park that night, testified that initially the group thought a dog had been hit by a car. They were shocked to discover the young girl lying in the middle of the road. He said that Becky seemed relieved when they found her and tried to speak, but her injuries were too severe. We ran to call the police, said the young Bermudian man, and we were telling her to hang on. Fox said that the crime scene was so bloody that he had thrown up. He had never seen anything like it in his life. The images from that night still haunted him, he told the court. Next on the stand was Dean Laudamore, who had driven Jasmine Means home that night on the back of his bike. He admitted that he was initially reluctant to identify Kurt Mundy and Justice Smith as the men who had taken Becky because he feared for his own safety. But he was certain they were the two men he had interacted with that night, and he was concerned when Rebecca didn't show up at Jasmine's house. He testified that after he dropped Jasmine off, he drove out to Ferry Reach Road, but by the time he got there, the police had already arrived, and he saw a body lying on the road. Next to testify was Jasmine Means. Now 20 years old, she had not been back to Bermuda since Becky's murder and was still suffering from a lot of guilt and shame over what had happened on that night. And Justice Smith's defense attorney planned to exploit the young woman's fragile emotional state. The savvy lawyer immediately began questioning Jasmine about the amount of alcohol that she and Becky had consumed on the night of the murder. They were underage and had been told by Jasmine's father not to drink. How many drinks had they consumed? How drunk were they? And how impaired was their judgment? The lawyer also wanted to know why they had accepted rides from strange men they didn't know. And why hadn't she called her dad for a ride, like he had asked her to do? Why, why, why? Many of the same questions Jasmine Means had asked herself over a million times. But no answer now was ever going to change what happened that night. On the morning of November 26, as the sun glistened off the turquoise waters surrounding the island paradise, a solemn procession of cars pulled up and parked along a bluff overlooking a serene, 
pink sandy beach. It was an unseasonably mild day, the kind of day that Bermudian families would head to Ferry Reach National Park for a picnic. But the people in those cars weren't heading for an idyllic day at the beach. They were there to study a crime scene. It was the fourth day of the trial, and members of the jury were visiting the isolated site on Ferry Reach Road where Rebecca Middleton had been found lying in a pool of her own blood. Accompanying the jury members were the judge and the lawyers dressed in their black robes. Walking behind them was the accused. Justice Smith shuffled alongside the police officer he was handcuffed to. He watched as the jurors, led by a police detective, made their way down to the sandy path towards the beach. Standing at the crime scene, now marked by ribbons and flowers, the jurors took turns flipping through an album containing the photographic evidence of where they were standing. The prosecution and the defense had agreed that it was important for the jury to see the area in person before they heard further testimony. The distance between the road and the beach was central to the case. According to Kurt Mundy, who had negotiated a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against Justice Smith, the two men had driven Rebecca to Ferry Reach Park. He said Rebecca had consented to sexual intercourse with him, and then afterwards he had left her in the park while he went down to the beach, approximately 125 feet away, to wash. While he was at the beach, he claimed to have heard Rebecca scream. And when he returned to her, she had been stabbed by Smith and was dying. It was critical for the jury to understand the distance between the spot where Rebecca's body had been found and the beach where Kurt Mundy claimed he went to wash. The defense team for Justice Smith were arguing that Mundy's story of consensual sex and genital bathing was false. The jurors needed to be able to gauge whether Rebecca's supposed cries for help from the roadside could have been heard from the beach where Mundy claimed to be. While the jurors examined the crime scene photos and poked around in the bushes separating the road and the beach, further down the pathway, a man stood looking at a makeshift memorial set up to honor Rebecca. Candles and flowers had been placed under a tree. The man read a laminated note that had been left. Remember that your loss is shared by many friends who care. The man understood that loss like no other, as he was Rebecca's father. And the thoughtful memorial was as close as he could come to where his daughter had died. Later that same afternoon, the trial resumed back at the courthouse, and the first expert witness was called by the prosecution. Dr. Michael Baden was the director of Forensic Science Services for New York State Police and had an impressive resume. Dr. Baden presided over an average of 30,000 death investigations per year in New York City and had provided expert analysis for the investigations into the deaths of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and comedian John Belushi. He had also been a defense witness in the trial of O.J. Simpson. After examining the forensic reports, police reports, photographs, and visiting the scene of the crime, Dr. Baden told the court that Rebecca Middleton had been tortured and raped before her murder. The prominent forensic pathologist identified 40 separate injuries on Rebecca Middleton's body. These included 17 stab wounds to her head, chest, neck, and abdomen, and additional superficial cuts and blunt force injuries. 
Rebecca had received five mortal stab wounds, one to her neck, which hit her jugular vein, and four others to her chest and back, which punctured her lungs. Any one of those wounds could have caused her instant death. But because she was young and healthy, Rebecca lived approximately 20 to 30 minutes after being stabbed. In Dr. Baden's opinion, if Rebecca had received medical attention within that time, she may have survived. But as he continued his testimony, Dr. Baden stated that the most important wounds on Rebecca's body were not the ones that killed her. The most telling marks were the more superficial cuts to the body because they showed that her arms and head had been held down, suggesting that two people took part in the attack that killed her. I would characterize them as controlling wounds, said the pathologist. Some might characterize them as torture wounds, he continued. They cause more pain than they do bleeding and are inflicted first to coerce someone to do something they don't want to do. Dr. Baden said that two pairs of hands were needed to inflict the kind of injuries that Rebecca had sustained, and she would not have been able to defend herself against the sexual attack. In fact, Rebecca's body only showed two small defensive wounds on her hands and bruising on her upper arms, indicating that she had been held down during the attack. Dr. Baden also suggested that two people had carried Rebecca to the middle of the road, where they left her still alive, probably hoping that her death would look like a hit and run. When asked to examine the serrated steak knife that had been recovered after the murder, Dr. Baden said the knife was consistent with the injuries found on Rebecca's body. A set of matching knives called super sharp stainless steel knives had been discovered in the Smith home with one missing. Under cross-examination by defense attorney John Perry, Dr. Baden was asked if any DNA evidence relating to his client, Justice Smith, had been found on Rebecca's body or at the scene of the crime. None, responded the doctor. Following Dr. Baden's testimony, another expert witness was called by the prosecution. Dr. Henry Lee was the chief criminalist and director of forensic science for the state of Connecticut. After examining the crime scene and autopsy photos, Dr. Lee concluded that Becky had been sexually assaulted in one location, dragged to a second location after she likely tried to escape, and was then carried to the middle of the road. She had been partially redressed, and some of her clothing had been scattered across the road to look like an accident. All of her jewelry was missing. The blood evidence and injuries to the body suggest that two people carried the victim to the middle of the road, concluded the doctor. Both expert witnesses called by the prosecution had agreed that two men had raped, tortured, and killed Rebecca Middleton, yet only one was on trial for murder. The Crown had decided not to call Kurt Mundy to testify against Justice Smith, recognizing too late that he had lied about his involvement in the crime. But now, was there enough evidence to convict Smith? In the third week of the trial, the jury was sequestered while the defense and the Crown continued to present their arguments to the judge. The defense attorney asked Supreme Court Judge Vincent Marabu to dismiss the case against his client, Justice Smith, saying that there wasn't sufficient evidence to give the case to the jury. There is no evidence of Smith's blood, semen, saliva, or anything of Mr. Smith's at the scene, said the lawyer. 
but Crown Attorney Pierce reminded the judge of the expert testimony of Dr. Baden and Dr. Lee, who both said that two people had engaged in the attack and murder of Rebecca Middleton. Smith and Mundy were partners in crime, said the prosecutor. And under Bermuda law, persons who aid and abet in the commission of a murder are equally culpable. It makes no difference who made the stab wounds, said Pierce. They were acting in concert. And while there was no direct evidence that placed Smith at the crime scene, Crown Attorney Pierce added that Smith's lies to the police showed a consciousness of guilt. But can you put the murder weapon in his hand, asked the judge. The prosecutor knew he couldn't, but said he was certain Smith had supplied the knife from his home and had given it to Mundy, again making him equally culpable in the murder. The judge advised both lawyers that he would make a ruling on the case the following Monday. But when Monday came and went without word from the court, both the defense and prosecution could only sit and wait. Also waiting were the Middletons, Rebecca's parents, who had sat through weeks of disturbing testimony, only to be told that the entire case was now on shaky ground. On Wednesday, December 16th, three and a half weeks after the Rebecca Middleton murder trial began, the jury, following orders from Justice Mirabu, announced Smith not guilty of murder. Friends of the now 20-year-old cheered while Becky's parents and other supporters sat in stunned silence. Many of the jurors were in tears. Rick Means, Jasmine's father, jumped up. They better lock you up with Mundy, he yelled at Justice Smith in a threatening tone. Rebecca's father sat motionless, cradling his head in his hands. No words could describe how he felt in that moment. Free at last! Free at last! A crowd of young men cheered as Justice Smith walked out of the Supreme Courthouse. He had spent over two years in jail. Another group nearby were shouting, Free Kirk Mundy! Outside the courthouse, when asked by reporters how they felt, Rebecca's parents could barely speak. The ache in my heart never goes away, said Cindy Bennett, as she choked back tears. No one deserves to be treated the way Becky was, and we trusted the right thing would be done, she added. This is a travesty of justice. We know what happened, and we know who did it, said a clearly distraught Dave Middleton. And we will not rest until the persons responsible for Rebecca's murder are brought to justice. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. News reports that Justice Smith had gone free in the murder of Rebecca Middleton hit the international airways. And it was exactly the type of press the island did not want. What value is placed on a life in Bermuda? Asked a Canadian news report. CNN, A&E, and other popular American media outlets declared that the island's justice system, as well as their police force, were deeply inept. And a website dedicated to justice for Becky and a call to boycott Bermuda, received 20,000 hits within the first few days. Once again, the island's tourism board was forced into damage control, assuring visitors that Bermuda was still a safe destination. But it wasn't just tourists that were concerned about the safety of the island. Bermudians were also voicing their concerns about the fact that two suspected killers had gotten away with murder. This horrific murder offends our sense of justice, wrote one local journalist. The people of Bermuda must ask themselves what's gone wrong with our criminal justice system. Calls and letters to the Premier of Bermuda demanded an official independent inquiry. On April 9, 1999, almost four months after walking out of the courtroom a free man, the Bermuda Court of Appeals ordered Justice Smith to stand trial a second time for the murder of Rebecca Middleton. The court had overturned the trial judge's decision that claimed there was not enough sufficient evidence against Smith to merit sending the case to the jury for deliberation. In a 12-page judgment, Sir James Astwood of the Court of Appeals stated that the court believed there was enough circumstantial evidence against Justice Smith for the jury to infer that he was at the scene of the murder and participated in the crime to some degree. Justice Astwood also referenced the expert testimony offered by two famous forensic scientists at the original trial, Dr. Baden and Dr. Lee, who both testified that Rebecca's killing had been carried out by two individuals. And while only Kurt Mundy's semen had been found on Rebecca's body during the autopsy, placing him at the scene of the murder, the circumstantial evidence also placed Smith there with him. Justice Aswood concluded. A trial date was set for May 3rd. But a second murder trial would never take place. When the Privy Council in London, England, Bermuda's ultimate court of appeal, 
restored Justice Mirabu's original decision. Citing the rule of double jeopardy, the Privy Council stated Justice Smith could not be retried. The Middletons were crushed again and weren't sure if they could go on fighting. The entire ordeal had taken a tremendous emotional, physical, and financial toll on Dave, Cindy, and their two sons. We lost everything the day Becky died, her father told a reporter. And while justice for Becky seemed doubtful, Bermudian authorities would later concede the family had suffered greatly. And what did they get for their pain and suffering? In 2006, 10 years after Becky's death, the island's Criminal Injuries Compensation Board awarded the Middletons $2,840 in compensation for travel expenses. A paltry sum for a family who had lost their daughter and had already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on their ongoing legal battle. What now? Was anyone ever going to take responsibility for what happened to the Canadian teenager? Or were Bermudian officials more intent on sweeping it under the rug to protect the island's reputation? Would Rebecca's family ever see her killers pay for what they had done? In 2007, internationally renowned human rights lawyer Sherry Booth, wife of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, agreed to take on the case for the Middletons. The family's Bermudian lawyer had requested the assistance of the high-profile London lawyer. After fighting for more than a decade to have the murder case retried, Becky's family had renewed hope and they were finally getting one more chance at justice. Bermuda's Supreme Court had agreed to a judicial review that could potentially force prosecutors to reopen the investigation. Hindered by the double jeopardy rule in retrying Mundy or Smith for the murder, the Middleton family and their legal team were hoping that a human rights argument could prompt new charges against the men. Sherry Booth would argue charges of rape were warranted because of prosecutorial error and alleged violations committed under the European Convention on Human Rights, in which Bermuda falls under as a British overseas territory. And while the 1996 murder case had largely been forgotten, it was now once again attracting international attention to the island because of Sherry Booth. On the morning of April 16, 2007, reporters and news crews began gathering in front of the Bermuda Supreme Court building. Walking past them unnoticed was Rebecca's father, Dave Middleton. Inside the courtroom, Sherry Booth stood in her black robe and silver wig to address the court. The British barrister took little time to mince words in her opening address, stating that Bermuda had failed Rebecca Middleton and her family when it neglected to guarantee every person in the country fundamental rights, especially the right to life. According to her, the prosecutor's office had failed to balance the accused trial rights to Rebecca Middleton's right to life. In addition to ignoring the victim's fundamental right to life, continued Sherry Booth, the courts had not charged either of the accused with any sexual crimes, highlighting Bermuda's lenient stand on sexual assault cases. Bermuda has a culture of impunity when it comes to sexual assault, said Booth. And until the way in which the country pursues such crimes is brought into the 21st century, it is actually repugnant to justice, she added. 
Miss Booth said the fact that the courts believed one of the accused when he testified the 17-year-old had consented to have sex with him only 30 minutes after they had met highlighted the country's lenient stand on sexual assault cases. She was assaulted, she was threatened with a knife, she was restrained, she was sodomized, and she was raped. All that and were asked to believe it was consensual, she asked the Chief Justice. Her argument struck at the heart of an issue that many human rights activists in Bermuda had been trying to raise for years. That many rapes on the island were never investigated, let alone brought to justice. In her closing remarks, Miss Booth reminded the court that neither man, Mundy, or Smith had ever expressed any remorse for what had happened to Rebecca. She then asked the Chief Justice, quote, to look at the special circumstances of this unique case, stressing that she was not asking the court to recharge Mr. Mundy or Mr. Smith with murder, but with sexual assault. Kurt Mundy should not be allowed to hide behind the 1996 deal, which only related to the murder charges. And Justice Smith's murder trial in 1998 should have gone to the jury, she added. It is actually an affront to justice to say that the decision in this case is set and that it cannot be changed or put right, Miss Booth stated. For Bermuda to say that nothing can be done is wrong, said Booth. There is something, a charge of sexual assault, that will not break the double jeopardy rule. The court can correct a grave wrong and finally provide justice for Rebecca and her family, she concluded. Sherry Booth's involvement in the case and her impassioned argument had once again focused unwanted media on the small British island and many were hopeful that justice would finally prevail. Rebecca's parents were certain the judge would rule in their favor and force the Director of Public Prosecutions to lay new charges against Kurt Mundy and Justice Smith. But three weeks later, Chief Justice Richard Ground said that Bermuda's double jeopardy law prevented him from considering new charges against the two suspects. Despite what he claimed was his deep sympathy for the Middleton family, the Chief Justice said that a botched prosecution and possible errors by the trial judge were not a good enough reason to override the principle of double jeopardy. And human rights arguments, in his opinion, did not amount to special circumstances. This is a dark day for Bermudian justice, wrote Canada's Globe and Mail newspaper. A family has been left at a dead end after a long and agonizing road to find justice. Sherry Booth later called the case a terrible, terrible injustice, one that no family should have to endure. It has been 26 years since the murder of Rebecca Jane Middleton. And while her family never got justice, some laws have changed to prevent other similar miscarriages from happening. The men who were accused of murdering Rebecca were protected under the rule of double jeopardy that states a defendant cannot be retried for the same crime twice following an acquittal or conviction. But today, that rule has been changed. In the UK, the legal principle was scrapped in 2005 for serious crimes, allowing new evidence such as DNA to be used in a retrial. And it was finally overhauled in Bermuda in 2010 for murder. 
but was not made retroactive and would not bring about justice for Rebecca Middleton. In 2014, a Canadian television crew traveling to Bermuda to film a one-hour documentary on Rebecca's murder were denied work permits. The government department in charge stated that the film crew's intended work was not, quote, in the protection of local interests. But for a story they didn't want to revisit, the government's refusal to allow the film crew entry put the 18-year-old murder back on the front pages. Commenting on the decision, the editor of the island's largest newspaper told the Toronto Star that public opinion was split. Some residents were upset by the government's decision, and others did not want to revisit the sordid murder. But, the editor added, the primary concern for many on the island was the TV program's potential negative impact on tourism. Despite Bermuda's refusal, the Quebec-based production company moved forward with the program and conducted interviews with the people involved outside of Bermuda. In 2017, Kurt Mundy was deported to his native Jamaica, where he would serve out the rest of his prison sentence. Bermudian newspapers reporting on the story said that the country had been trying to deport him for years. But even with him gone, it still didn't erase the island's shame in its judicial handling of the murder of Rebecca Middleton. As for Justice Smith, who was acquitted for Rebecca's murder in 1998, he did not stay out of trouble for long. Two years later, in 2002, he was charged and convicted of stabbing another woman in a taxi. He has been in and out of prison most of his life. Today, over a quarter century has passed since two giddy teenage girls from Belleville, Ontario set out on a six-week summer vacation on an island paradise. And then, in one fateful moment, their dream trip turned into a nightmare when they put their trust in two strangers. One made it home, the other did not. Rebecca Middleton was viciously assaulted and killed, and no one has ever been convicted of her murder. A Canadian family would never be the same, but the tragedy and the relentless search for justice did not destroy the Middletons. It made them stronger, and in many ways, Becky still lives on in the hearts and minds of those who knew her and loved her. One of her brother's daughters has Rebecca as her middle name, and her best friend, Jasmine Means, also gave her daughter the middle name of Rebecca. And Dana Rollins, the Bermudian man, who found the 17-year-old girl dying in the middle of the road and held her hand, named his firstborn daughter, Becky. Rebecca's parents, Dave and Cindy, who fought for years to get justice for their daughter, often wonder what she would have been like as an adult. Would she have married? Had children? What kind of career would she have pursued? Questions that can never be answered but they will always remember Becky as she was in 1996, a vibrant, happy teenager, excited about her summer vacation in paradise with her best friend. When the moon is full, Rebecca's mom, Cindy Bennett, thinks back to a few days before her daughter traveled to Bermuda. Before she left, Becky was worried about getting homesick, so Cindy reassured her that all she needed to do was look at the moon and know her family was thinking of her. I will see her again someday, says her mom.
This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.